Hi, my name is Peter Lindemann, and I'm a project coordinator in the Evaluation, Data Integration, and Technical Assistance Program, also known as EDIT, housed within the Institute for Sexual and Gender Minority Health and Well-Being at Northwestern University. I'm very excited to welcome you to the first ever EDIT Community Spotlight episode. Our first episode features a conversation between one of our postdoctoral research scholars, Lauren Beach, and community organizer with the Southern AIDS Coalition, Kafri Abyss. Since we work at a research institution, we deal with large qualitative and quantitative data all the time. But sometimes we forget that behind each of these data points is a person with a story, and that that story is evidence, and it's just as valid as any peer-reviewed publication or conference presentation. I'll turn it over to Lauren and Caffrey to discuss the importance of using these stories as evidence as Caffrey shares parts of his. Pleasure to have you here today, friend. I just have to say, it having Coffee's friendship has been a delight of my life, and we've known each other. I think going on five years now. I think we met at the White House. We did. Did we meet at the White House? Yes, we did. Yes. And so uh, we have done a lot of work together, not only as friends but as colleagues. So Coffrey is a longtime organizer, an advocate on behalf of HIV, um, reducing stigma advancing self-advocacy, as I'm sure we'll learn more about, related to HIV prevention, care, and treatment. Also, in addition to that, has done a lot of work around intersectionality, specifically around bisexuality, um, LGBT issues, thinking of structurally beyond just individual identities, how do these different aspects of, of identity and community affect people's opportunities in society. He is a former child, children's librarian. Um, he has a, can I fold up those books? Um, in addition to being a librarian, he's also an author and editor, really empowers the voices of people uh, living with HIV and community members in particular. I don't know how many book projects you got going on now. <laughs> um, and he is a community organizer at the Southern East Coalition for the last two years, about a year and a half or so. Does a lot of this work, not only um, has done this work in D.C., in New York, but also in the Deep South and continues to do this work there. Um, and has, as I said, been to the White House to showcase his many talents uh, at the bisexual community uh, briefings that were held there starting in 2013 and has been just a true friend through all of it. Um, I'm going to let him talk more about the work that I've been humbled to lead with him and to, to follow in his shadow, really, <laughs> um, as we move specifically focusing in on ways to improve uh, bisexual health for, among people living with HIV. And so um, I guess with that, really the first question that we had to kind of get you talking, and I know you're good, I know you can tell a story. <laughs> that's one thing I've learned. So I think that's the first thing I learned about you, actually. Uh, but, so the first thing I really wanted to, to have you just open up with is tell us more about your life in your own words, your background, and what really drove you to do the work that you do as a bisexual advocate, as an HIV advocate, as a person doing this work nationally. Um, just, start to tell us your story and what inspires you to be who you are and to do what you do. Well, I want to thank you, Lauren, and I want to thank Gregory, and I want to thank the staff here for inviting me and thinking that anything I have to say is relevant enough uh, for you <laughs> academics to take a listen. Um, I am Kafri Kujachakalia Biff, and it is a chosen name. I changed my name legally um, when I was about 20 or 21. 
I did that because I recognized that in this society, people look at me and I was going to be identified as a black or African man, and so I wanted a name that reflected that. Um, the coffee had come to me. Uh, I had a professor at Florida a University. His name was uh, his name was Joseph Baldwin, actually. Um, and he taught. He was the department head of the psychology department. Uh, he taught a black psychology, just a black psychology one on one class. But he taught it to undergraduates like he was lecturing scholars. And the way he unpacked the, the kind of history of ancient Egypt or Kemet. Um, really reflecting on me, and so Kafri, you know, was a name I chose from them, and and then uh, the founder of Kwanzaa, Dr. Marlana Karinga, I met him when I was at Florida A&M, and the third time I met him, I told him I was going to change my name and asked him for a name, and he, and he just simply turned around and said, what's the difference between the first time I met you and now? And that was really self-determination, which is Kuchichakalia, Swahili, one who defines, defends names and speaks for himself instead of having others do that for them. And Abif is one of the builders, the master builders at the building of King Solomon's Temple. And I've always considered myself a builder of community, and so I put all that together, and, and that's kind of where I stand as Kafri Kuchichakalia Abif. Um, I have to say that um, I understand very uniquely um, and, I, and I have, let me say this, I have two sons. I have a 26-year-old who is six foot eight. He's a double graduate of Drexel University, and he's now playing professional basketball in Denmark. Um, I have a 25-year-old who is my bonus child. Um, he came to me when he was seven years old, and he actually, uh, he's otherworld. He actually graduated from Georgia State last year with a double major in neuroscience and psychology with a 3.9 cumulative. He's currently doing a master's degree in psychology before going to medical school because he's determined to be a neurosurgeon. I know where I come from in the sense that um, I grew up with having family reunions all the time. And so as a child, I got to hear this history of my family. And I know that Big John or Big Jack in my family was my great-great-grandfather was a slave in Mullen, South Carolina, Mullen and Laura, South Carolina, and my paternal grandfather's name was Houston, he, was, he became a sharecropper. And um, the way my family tells the story is that one morning the owner came out and asked him where his children were, my grandfather where his children were, and he said they were in school. And he told him, niggas didn't need an education. If you don't have all your children working this property tomorrow, I'm putting you off my farm. And so that night, my grandfather took the man's truck, his wife and his eight children, and stole away to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, my father um, was, they still needed money, and my father uh, lied about his age and entered Marine Corps at 15 and did four years and came out at 19. And so my father ended up working for General Motors, tool and die. He was functionally illiterate, though. He knew how to count his money. But, but, he was, he was, but he was, in a way, he's functionally illiterate. Um, but he was a master at um, community. At, um, both him and my mother were centers or pillars of the community in terms of um, things being a we and not an I in our family. And so um, I grew up in a neighborhood called Crestus Terrace, which is in the township of Norfolk Sales, which is in the county of Allegheny, which the city of Pittsburgh is in. And in my neighborhood, it was the second highest elevation in the county. So from what we call the hill, I can literally look 
down the the river was one of the rivers at the bottom of our community. I literally looked look over and see the Cathedral of Learning. When the entire time I was growing up, the Cathedral of Learning is the tallest building at the University of Pittsburgh. And I could see uh, the U.S. Steel Building. I could see these downtown buildings. And, and I remember growing up that uh, I had both of my maternal grandparents and my paternal grandparents living in the neighborhood with aunts and uncles all over the neighborhood. Actually, my paternal grandfather and my maternal great-grandfather were two of the first men to move to this community and created it and actually was the first black incorporated neighborhood in western Pennsylvania. So I grew up in this space with family and, and all this stuff going on. And I and, and I shared I was sharing earlier today one of the things um, that I learned early was masking. Um, very early I recognized that there was something different about me that I couldn't quite name. Um, and in my community I grew up in there were there were lesbians who were open and they were in our community and everybody loved them and they were they were everybody's family and everybody respected them. They were openly gay men that were in our community and everybody loved them and everybody respected them. I mean, you know, my, one of my best friend's cousins, James, I mean, he came to church, you know, with nails and pumps on and the whole nine. I mean, it, it, but I couldn't see myself in that. I, if that's gay, I can't be that. Um, and this is as a young child and internalizing this stuff and not really being able to talk to anybody about it for as much love and respect I saw in my community. I couldn't see my way through talking to anybody about that, about my own experience, even my parents or anyone. And so for, um, and so for me, um, I, I, I really began by um, being whoever I needed to be for whoever was in front of me. So I knew exactly who I needed to be for my mother. I knew exactly who I needed to be for my father. I knew exactly who I needed to be for my teachers, my sisters, my friends, my aunts, my uncles, you know, the, the pastor at church or the choir director. I knew exactly who I needed to be for that person, and that's who I was. And in my time um, of healing and recovery, um, my first sponsor shared with me that probably my, my first addiction was being someone else. And so um, I had to kind of reconcile that and understand that that, that is uniquely kind of, uh, of, of a part of me. Um, but, and I also share that I'm the first male on both sides of my family to ever go to college. And, and so there have been others that have gone to college now and, and gotten degrees, but you know, I have an undergrad degree in Africana Studies um, and I have a master's in library science. And as Lauren shared with you, um, my first career was as a children's librarian. Who would have thunk it? Um, you don't see that bun in these glasses. <laughs> you don't see that bun in these glasses. But um, also, even in that work, I was a youth advocate, and, and it was a great way for me to build community because the only reason why I became a librarian was because I was at the University of Pittsburgh, and I was doing something. I was speaking and doing something. And after I got finished, this guy came up to me and introduced himself and said that he, you know, he was a graduate of the library school actually in Pittsburgh, and he, and he said that he was working in the neighborhood library he grew up in. And I was like, okay, that's cool for you, whatever. And uh, he asked me, he said, you know, you need to do yourself a favor and go speak to Dr. E.J. Josie, who um, was at, on faculty at the University of Pittsburgh School of Library and Information Science. 
And he, uh, Dr. Josie, is considered kind of the godfather of black librarianship. And so I went to his office, I had this meeting with him, and he asked me to tell me about myself. And at that time, I mean, I, I, I was pretty radical. I wanted to be the next A. Philip Randolph. I wanted to be the next Malcolm. I, want, I wanted to build community. I wanted to change the world. All this stuff I wanted to do in community, I had that set in my mind that that was really what I wanted to do. Didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew that was what I needed to do. And uh, he said, he, he listened to me go on and on and on and on. He said, well, you know, you can do all that in libraries. And I'm still not getting it, right? And so I'm leaving his office. He hands me an application. He says, bring the application back on Monday. Don't worry about the application fee. I'm like, okay, this guy's serious, right? So I'm at the door, and he says, son, and I turn around. He says, I want you to remember one thing if you don't remember anything else I share with you. He said, the master's of library science degree gives you the credentials, to run an institution in your own community. And that was it. Because there's a library in every ghetto. And, and for, for my time as a librarian, that's what I spent. I was in urban areas, in urban public libraries, in communities where children had less access than other communities. And I went in those spaces and created access and, and really um, allowed children to see a world outside of their own community by connecting them to books and literature and reading and programming. And, and so I really enjoyed that time. Um, but as Lauren shared with you, uh, and I'll share with you, that um, I left uh, college. I, I, I graduated high school in 1984, and Reagan was president, I think, at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Reagan was president. And he had never said the words HIV, and I had never heard anything about HIV when I left to go to college. And I went from, went, left Pittsburgh and went to Florida A&M University. And, uh, I, and I even, when I went, we left the college, I mean, my parents didn't take me anything. I just like, I don't need y'all to take me, just get me on a plane, I'm gone. You know, and, and I got there, and I remember calling my mother, like, after I got settled in. She says, how's things going? You know, I said, Ma, this is, this is great. I said, I've never seen so many big butts in my whole life. And she's like, I, wait a minute, I ain't seen you down there for that. I said, I know you didn't, but I'm just saying. Because <laughs> I had grown up in my neighborhood was a black community, but it was in a predominantly white townships. So I grew up with Benaki, Scalise, Pompincelli, Coconcelli. You know, I grew up with just all these Italian guys, Italian families. And so, uh, you know, it was it was a rare treat to, to see a black woman that wasn't related to me. Because <laughs> so, everybody in my neighborhood was connected some kind of way, you know. You know, it was, you know, so... Um, and so I... And I said, the long story being short, that I, I, I went to left high school and went to university without ever having an opportunity to share um, both my um, kind of internal struggle around my own sexuality, but even more importantly, I never had an opportunity to share that that internal struggle um, had me at, and, and on several occasions um, attempting suicide in my early, in my early teen years. And, uh, and it's only by angels that I'm here because right outside of my neighborhood, you can walk outside of my neighborhood, and at the time, the George Westinghouse Bridge was the largest concrete constructed bridge in North America. And on three separate occasions, I left out of my parents' house and walked to the bridge to jump. And on every single occasion, some adult stopped their car and saw this child literally child, I'm talking about 10, 11, 12-year-old on this bridge 
they took me home. They didn't know me, but they never knocked on my door, my parents' door, and said, you know, <laughs> your child was about, just let me out the car. And like, I, think, I think about that now in retrospect. At the time, I was thinking whatever, but I'm thinking about it now as an adult. They didn't even, like, you know, knock on the door and say, hey, your child, like your child was out there doing this. So um, when I, I left Florida and m actually, uh, to my, I learned later, I left Florida and m um, uh, HIV positive. And I've been living with HIV for 29 years. And, uh, and so, um, you know, Lauren, share with you, I mean, a lot of my work is centered around, around trying to build community and trying to um, bring resources and tools to communities, particularly in the Deep South, in the rural deep south, where systems are just inadequate, where systems are um, inequitable, where there's no parity, um, particularly where these are red states and there's no expansion of health care, where there's no health care, where the only way you get health care is if you're a child, you're pregnant, or you're over 65. You know, these are the things that are systems in, in, in a, that are wrapped around um, how stigma overlays all of this because you know I often say that HIV doesn't kill stigma does and it kills by the stigma of not wanting to get tested the stigma of not showing up to your doctor the stigma of not taking medication the stigma of not sharing your status alone will kill you holding on to it and standing in that space of isolation living with HIV and the actual mental trauma that happens because I believe that most anyone who's been who is living with HIV has some form of mental illness, whether it be post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, they're dealing with something. And then those things not being met or unchecked or not being dealt with create a space for you not to take care of yourself, right? It creates a, an opportunity for, um, for you to give in to, to your circumstance, right? And so you lay that on top of the institutional racism, the poverty, that overlays the South, and you just look at that. You look at poverty, and you look at race, and you look at HIV. They're literally just lay on top of each other. Um, and if you, if you look at any kind of maps that Lorna, you guys would create, and so um, yeah, so I know I'm running my mouth. But yeah. <laughs> I think one of the most powerful gifts you have, Kafri, is your ability to really tell an amazing story and to share yourself while you do it. And so thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, there are, there's a lot to unpack there, though. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot there. I think um, you heard a lot about truly lived experience, a lot about different parts of your life, different phases of your life, <coughs> different, you know, kind of your personal history leading up to the work you've been doing with the Southern AIDS Coalition. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about how your background and experiences informs the work that you do every day uh, as a community organizer with the Southern East Coalition? You know, um, what I'll say is, is that I have been doing, I've been working in HIV since probably 1998. But on March 21st of 2016 was the first time I got hired to be paid to work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it could not have come at a better time because, of course, my, my, my adult children, don't, they don't need me in the same way, right? And so most of, my, most of my time is spent on the road and traveling. 
I think for myself, how it, how it really informs me is that I understand intimately what it is, because bottom line is, is in, in this 35 years of HIV, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed for the person who's receiving the diagnosis. And I say that meaning that me getting a diagnosis 35 years ago and somebody getting one today, for that person who's actually sitting and receiving the message, nothing has changed. Because immediately what happens is, is you're thinking, oh, who am I going to tell? Who's going to still love me? How am I going to navigate this? All those things, those immediate kinds of things, those things are the same. And I think because, because I actually am, because I'm so transparent, I guess, in a way, when I step in the space, I give license for other people to step in that space as well. You know, the reason why I do this work is because, you know, I can't tell my story in isolation because my story wouldn't be complete if other stories aren't told as a collective, right? I can't tell my story of staying, uh, I can't, I can't, when I leave here today, I can't say, tell my story about being here if I don't tell my story, uh, if I don't include you in it, if I don't include you in it, if I don't include you in it, right? Because it's incomplete. And so when I go into particularly, because last year, um, a great part of my work is the lead academy training that the Southern AIDS Coalition does. And the lead academy training is leadership education and advocacy development. And it's a 24-hour curriculum where we go into and basically provide this, we call it a training, but it's really a walkthrough empowerment for people living with HIV. And so my work is centered for black, gay, and bisexual men. And, and what's so great about working with the Southern AIDS Coalition is that we are, as an, as an organization, unapologetic about, that, and, and about the fact that we are going to work with the population that is most devastated by this population and not made to feel bad about it, right? Not made to feel bad because we're, we're not ignoring anybody, but we understand intimately what is going on in community. And if you look at the number, like last year I was in Columbia, South Carolina, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and Jackson, Mississippi. You take those four cities, and each one of those four cities are in the top ten of new HIV infections every, for the last three years. They're also top in, in HIV-related deaths, right? So, so, so what is that telling you? Not only are there new, in, in new infections, but the deaths tell you that the deaths tell you that people aren't getting diagnosed early. It's also telling you that people aren't connected to medical care. The treatment cascade we hear about, you, you all know what the treatment cascade is, right? So, the, so you look at the treatment cascade in New York or San Francisco, the community ca- cascade, it's going to be completely different than what it looks like in somewhere like, you know, Wachonka, Alabama, or in, you know, Huntsville. So this year, I'm stepping into Montgomery, Huntsville, Wachonka, Alabama, Gainesville, Panama City, and Nashville. And so when I show up in space, it really is that I tell people all the time, I'm coming in space to amplify the voices of people living with HIV to be the policy change they want to see in their own health jurisdiction. Part of my purpose or part of my goal is that when I leave a space, I leave, I leave, that the people that I work with are louder than my own. 
their voice is louder than my own. And that's really intentionally the goal. Is I want them to, to, to be intentional. But I also go into the space asking this question to the men I work with. And this is, and sometimes, I mean, it's, it just became kind of a, a question that I asked. And it simply is, what will it take for you to create a coalition to save your own life? Because the bottom line is, what I tell them is that we are who we've been waiting for. And it is us who have to do this work. And, and when I say us, I'm not just talking about black gay bisexual men. I'm talking about us, black community. I'm talking about big mama. I'm talking about auntie. I'm talking about the deaconess at church. I'm talking about the preacher. I'm talking about little sis. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the entire community has to understand, right, that it's going to take all of us to stop this thing. Because if we don't, it don't matter. All of us will be dead. Right, and 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 so, you know, having giving men, even sometimes in my talking, giving them language to use, and and when they want to, you know, part of it is is that we want you in your social network to to dispel myths right around yourself. That's how you stop this stuff. Being able to speak up when somebody's providing misinformation or when someone's shaming somebody, or creating a different a paradigm in terms of dialogue with the community around HIV. And that's what really is necessary because when, when we do that, then healing can happen. Because we have to understand that, that there needs to be a reconciliation between the, the larger black community and gay and bisexual men and, women, and, and black women of trans experience. And how, quite honestly, in so many spaces, in so many ways, people are throwing their daughters and sons to the streets on sexuality, on what they're holding. Because you have to also understand, it happens at other places as well, but on top of that racism and on top of the stigma is also the Bible Belt. And so you have people who, who would believe that you don't need to go see a mental health counselor. You just need to pray on it. You come on, let us lay hands on you, and you're gonna be all right. I mean, I mean, and, and they believe that to their core. And so, when you're dealing with that kind of ethos from people, it is very hard to push back. But it is also um, because um, we're very intentional about who who we recruit into the lead academies. It's very, very wonderful to be able to move people from a place where then, then they're ready to do action and, and being able to show up for themselves, really. And, you know, and that's my thing first. Show for yourself first. You show for yourself, then you can show for community. But show for yourself first. And I think that's, that, that's some of um, how we have such success at the Southern AIDS Coalition. Thank you for that. And one thing, so I wanted to say that in the last four or five months, um, we've had the privilege here at Northwestern of applying for a number of grants with, uh, with you in particular as part of your role within the Southern AIDS Coalition. And I think one of the single most powerful, I guess, concepts that were written into, especially the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation application that we put forward, was this concept that the LEAD Academy is an amazing intervention because the people who go through it, you teach them to be the intervention. Right. And I think that really comes through strongly. Yeah. And, and, I think, and, and what's great is, is that 
the opportunity. Last year, we piloted the Lead Academy, but this year, we actually are going to have it evaluated, which is going to, which for us, because uh, uh, the work of the Southern AIDS Coalition is in several buckets, and one of them is federal direct advocacy. One of them is building, um, helping strengthen and build state-based HIV coalitions. Then it's this grassroots movement, but the fourth is formative research. We have a partnership with a Southern AIDS Strategy Initiative for SASE, that's out of Duke University, who has been doing a lot of research, particularly and specifically on the Deep South states. And, and we're actually, the two are probably going to merge really at some point because Carol McAllister, who's been the lead on that, is going to be retiring next year sometime. And so we're trying to position ourselves, even with, with partnering with Northwestern, to position ourselves to be able to um, have, as a part of our work, be able to, be, to do research. And, and, and not only just with the evaluation of the LEAD Academy, I think partly when I, when I initially um, pitched the idea of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grant to you, mm-hmm. I had said to both my executive director and said to Lauren, I want to make a greater contribution to the lives of black gay and bisexual men in the Deep South. And the only way we can do that is that we actually have to, have to do some research directed at black gay and bisexual men in the Deep South, particularly in the rural Deep South. And I don't, I don't know of any work that's being done in that area. I don't know of any body of research that's being done in that area. And I think that the only way we can inform interventions and programs and efforts is if we actually have some tools to actually work with. And so that was really the, the real driving force behind me really wanting to seek that kind of support from, uh, from a grant. And, and, and I think that... Um, that, that I, I, I'm standing on the, the, that we're going to get the grants because <laughs> I, I just because because I, because from what I understand and from what I witnessed, mm-hmm. the folks in this institute are some beasts at writing some grants. <laughs> <laughs> These folks here, woo! I'm telling you because. Had my head, me and Nick's head was on a swivel for a minute. Like, <laughs> I mean, but you guys do amazing work. But also, it's not even that. It is that we are seeking to work with a population that needs focus. And I think grantees, grantors, are going to see that gap. They're going to see the gaping opening and how they can contribute to, to the work. Thank you. And I think... One of the most powerful parts about this is exactly what you said. You're in the community every day. You do this work all over the 16 southern states in Washington, D.C. You have, you know, four or five cities that... How many days a year do you travel, Catherine? Actually, you know, when it gets going, I I probably travel about 20 days out of the month. Yeah. Yeah. So you are literally in the community on the ground doing this work. But it's great because, you know, one of the things about coming on to the Southern AIDS Coalition is that our executive director, Nick Carlisle, understood uniquely that I was already that I'm bring, that I was bringing myself to this work right yeah. and so I'm allowed to show up being me every day mm-hmm. which is I, ooh, incre- to just to show up and be me right to just be intimately who I am in a space in a workplace is absolutely the best thing I could ever have and it also and also what has been interesting is because is that I've been able to 
create a dialogue, particularly in the South, that, in, that, in, that is inclusive of using the actual word out loud, bisexual. Like you know, y'all can you know because folk can say gay, they can say gay all day. But somehow, I mean, it's like they can't get it out. It's like they got issues, right? And so I show up in the space, and I tell you know, and I, and I paraphrase it all the time. I introduce myself and say, "Yeah, I'm Kafri Abiff, and I'm living HIV for 29 years, and I'm a bisexual man, and I'm I say I'm bisexual because I intimately understand." That in myself, I have the ability to love and appreciate the love of a man and a woman. Not always at the same way, not always at the same time. But I do understand that, right? And so, if you want to say, hmm. You know, because, you know, it's about use of words, right? You know, because in those words, I use things like love, right? People think of sex. When they think about sexuals, they just think of sex. That's all y'all doing is that sex. You know, and, and, and even I know the work that Lauren has done and others have done in research around bisexual health has shown us that actual, the behaviors of bisexual people are no different than anyone else's. It's just our outcomes are just dramatically different for any host of reasons, but a lot of it is around access. A lot of it is around institutions and systems not being intentional about it being inclusive and I'm talking about heterosexual, normal, whatever you want to call them, spaces, and LGBTQ spaces, right? Being just having issues and and how that plays out in our in our overall health and our health outcomes. Yeah. And for me, uh, I also identify as bisexual. I think I probably say that every day, but here's here's, <laughs> here's that here's today's instance. I'm um, Absolutely right. Uh, I remember when I first came out, I think it was, it was over 20 years ago now, um, to myself and then to a number of people in my life around me. Not my parents right away. Um, it was something that wasn't, you're right, I ran into exactly the same thing, not being understood, not being accepted by people in either LGBT or in, or in ma- mainstream heterosexual spaces, I guess. And uh, then thinking about what does that mean how did how did I begin to know there were other people like me it was at first there was really no one else in my high school who is a who had really identified as bisexual there are people who used other words maybe um they weren't using labels or there was one person who was a lesbian identified as a lesbian and then another person who identified as gay on my but I was the only one who's out as bi in my high school and uh it wasn't until research came out that I knew there were a lot of other people like me uh, and, you know, community came later for me in a lot of ways. Like, I had met a lot of other people, like you said, who were out as gay, lesbian, mm-hmm. other sorts of identities like that. But research was powerfully transformative in my search for uh, position in community and then being able to claim power in different ways to say, actually, if you add up all the people who identify as gay and who identify as lesbian, it doesn't equal the number of people who identify as bisexual. And, and, and I think the, re- <laughs> the research that you, Dr. Herokuti, meeting you, Dr. Herokuti, and, Her- and Dr. Greensmith, mm-hmm. has even brought to to help inform and shape the work I do, because it's, it's that research is kind of caught up to my lived experience. Yes, exactly. Right? That's what I was trying to say. You said yes, it much it, better it, than it, I it's, it's, caught up, yeah. it's, it's caught up to my lived experience. Yes. And, and 
And, and I think that um, some of the work that we've been able to do collectively, I'm yeah. talking about, you know, you and me and you being able to present and show up in spaces and, and to present specifically about Basel Shoel and conferences and have people actually listen in to the conversation and actually get a better, just get an understanding of what they really truly don't know about the disparity in bisexual health and, and then them come, becoming aware and then wanting to take some action, I think it's very powerful because, you know, um, you know Lauren and I were, were asked by um, Ernest Hopkins, who works for the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, to come out and be a part of a two-and-a-half-day health summit that we're doing out there and wanted us to speak, specifically speak about uh, disparities in bisexual health. And when we did that, we're in a room of, and it was a small group, it was maybe less than 25 people, but all these people had been working in health and working particularly in HIV for quite some time. Decades, in many cases. And all of them had no idea of what was going on in disparity in bisexual health. I mean, and it's like, and and we're sitting, me and Lawrence sitting there looking at you like, it's not that we were surprised, we were surprised at the level that it was in that room for these folks, right? And so to that end, you know, I came up in September, last time it was, I mean, November, mm-hmm. um, when uh, Jim Pickett at the AIDS Foundation in Chicago was at that conference in San Francisco and said, I want to do something and raise awareness for the Chicago community. And so we had a one-day summit at the um, at AIDS Foundation in Chicago I had what over 100 people in attendance for that one day thing and over 2 million impressions on Facebook I mean on on Twitter just let us know that if we continue to show up in space and, and speak our truth and, and put our position out there that what we're seeking we're going to get because the bottom line is I think all of us have come to this idea that all of our work and the work we're doing um, the momentum we're getting needs to get to a place of funding. And, and the funding is is really that goal, right, to un- be able to unpack so much of the stuff that we anecdotally know but need to do some research and work on, right? We need that funding to do that, right? And, and, and I think that one of the great things about um, having this opportunity um, with 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 the researchers is that I've underst- I've come to understand that my lived experience in a, in a setting of educating people is just as valid as the research and that it matches and mirrors the research in a way that that I can speak my truth and it really just brings to light what the research is already saying and I think that has been one of the joys of working with you working with Heron and working with Dr. Rurkenty it has been one of the joys is being able to show up and actually feel validated. And I think we are actually seeing now the ripples of that in that, you know, just recently we're getting contacted by some folks in St. Louis who want to uh, replicate the Bisexual Health Summit in St. Louis. And then uh, someone contacted us from Northern Virginia. They want to make sure that the ASOs in Northern Virginia have parity for bisexuals and they want to learn. They want to learn from Lauren and want to learn from us how we, how we can help them create a better system and make those things happen. And I think there's, there's more, and more, the more we do, I think the more momentum and more people will understand and the more strides we'll make across the board and really across the country for bisexual health. And I think one of the things that I shared yesterday when we had a meeting, because actually yesterday we met with the AIDS Foundation of Chicago again um, to kick off uh, a launch of a bisexual health, bisexual health task force for Chicago. 
right, which will probably spread to Illinois, and people will hear about it, right, and then people will want to duplicate, which, which is a great thing. But I was sharing yesterday, one of the other things we have to do is we have to make sure that not only are we publishing at the academic level, but we have to publish at the, at the social level. We have to show up in, like, the advocate. We have to show up in, in, in magazines and publications that people read, that communities read, right, um, that that because a lot of academic papers aren't accessible to folks, so we need we need to be writing and publishing in those spaces, and 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 I was telling them that that we need to make sure that we're doing that so that uh, the people know what we're doing, right? And people know that we're here. Um, and I think that if we continue to do this, we're gonna we're just gonna see strides. And I'm just so glad that that I've lived long enough, and I say long enough only because I don't take it for granted that I'm still here 29 years after being told I was living with HIV. I don't take that for granted. And I I don't take it for granted because today would have been the 34th birthday of my gay son, Antron Richard Brown, who transitioned from AIDS-related complications on November 12th of last year at 33 years old. And People keep asking me, did he die of AIDS-related complications? I say, technically, yes, but what he died of was health inequity complications. The system failed him because he was an activist. He was an advocate. The system, the inadequate system failed him because there's no way in hell at this time in this day that somebody gets chaos. The system failed him. And the system is failing communities across the South because there are over 400 deaths of AIDS-related complications in Georgia alone every year. And it looks that same way in Baton Rouge and in New Orleans and in Jackson, Mississippi. And, and, and it was an article I'll share with Lauren, that, that, and so you all can have it. It, it was called The 7,000. And uh, uh, Mark, Mark S. King, who um, has a blog, My Fabulous Disease, he wrote an article, as he also was a friend of Antron's, about how, when he looked at this, this is just happening across the South. And it's happening because systems aren't in place to hold and care for people. And they're not just there. And, and the hoops you know, that people have to go through um, are, are exhausting. Yeah. We want to take a quick moment to thank Cosmic Johnny, the band you hear playing right now, for writing and recording our theme music. Their debut album, Good Grief, is available on Spotify. There's a lot that you do that's amazing in every, you know, both on that personal level, in the community, nationally. You mentioned the advocate, but you didn't mention that you're contributing editor to a number of those publications. you know, do you want to talk about a little bit some of the other community-based work that you do to disseminate, like your books and the um, Chill and other publications? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I, um, on occasion, I've, I've been featured in like Plus Magazine, Pause Magazine, ANU Magazine, and 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 most recently, um, become a contributing editor for Plus Magazine and a new publication under the. Um, 
retrograde umbrella that's the advocate and these other publications. It's a new publication called Chill, and it's it's an urban kind of uh, urban queer black kind of geared toward publication kind of thing. And uh, and I'm still trying to find myself in that because you know I I, I, I can write about things I'm passionate about, but you know you give me to write about the last OG, give me 300 words about the last OG, a new thing by Tracy Morgan. I'm like, really? <laughs> 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 and, 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 but, but the thing about it is, is that, you know, I, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can do this, right? I can do this, but can't write a one-page letter. You know, I mean, I, 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 and I'm serious. It just, it, it just, I just, it, it, and it's, it's my own, my own stuff, right? I mean, I can, I can, I can write, I can do some volumes, but writing something a one-page letter is, ooh, pulling my teeth out writing a one-page letter. It's so difficult for me. It's just my imperfection. But, but um, one of the things that that has been for me, in terms of moving forward my, with my own spirituality and living with HIV is that I understand that there is a power greater than myself at work. That's why I'm still here. And so I re- recognize and acknowledge that and, and I'm in communication with that. Um, and so, you know, um, these things come to me, these ideas come to me and, and I say they come to me because that cl- I, some of the stuff that I, I would have never thought. And so um, when the idea for cornbread fish and collard greens, um, prayers, poems, and affirmations for people living with HIV came about, I was saying to that same power, like, are you serious? Like, are you really serious? You, me editing a book, da 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 And then I had to think, you know, uh, if you think about, if any of you know the Christian kind of terms of, of, of God being Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, right? And I think about my life, the beginning of my life and now, that things were done in order to position me to be able to do this. And I just hadn't thought of them, right? Because as a librarian, um, I, I was a reviewer of books. I reviewed a lot of books. But as we, we say in the library world that um, you have to read a thousand books before you can write one. And I have read way more than a thousand <laughs> and so, um, and so that experience when I came to do this because when I when I went to the publisher, I knew exactly the type I wanted. I knew exact. I knew uh, this one here. I, I this, the cover was done by Javaka Steptoe, who is an award winning children's book illustrator. So I had a relationship with him, and his father actually died of age related complications. So I said to Javaka, "I'm doing this book called Cornbread Fish and Collins: Prayers, Poems, and Affirmations for People in Wiltshire, and I want you to do cover." And that's all I said. And this is what he said. So I already had my cover. And there's actually 127 different contributors in this book. So we have contributors from South Africa, Rwanda, Ghana, Nigeria, Spain, Italy. Um, and their indigenous people went there in their indigenous language and the English translation. So there's Kosa, there's Spanish, there's, yeah. It's like, so if, they, if, they, it's, if, if uh, English wasn't their first language, their first language was done in English as, as a translation. And so, um, so th- that was done like in 2013. And Laura teases me because she says she doesn't know how many books I'm doing, and my son teases me as well. But I, <laughs> but I independently published this one. This is the second one called Sister Speak, and this is a collection of voices and stories of women from around the world who are living with HIV. And so I have women as far as India in this book, and Africa, in the UK, also 
and women of trans experience. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm currently working. Writing something for a magazine is cool because you kind of see it immediately, right? It's like, oh, damn, yeah, it's coming out next month, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but the work I do in these, this, these long hauls, are, are really what I really love. And, and I'm work, currently working on, um, and when I say working on, once I receive a submission, then it becomes a book. Once I receive the first submission, it becomes a book. And so I'm working on um, one called uh, um, Trans Voice Shout Out Loud, one called It's Our Turn to Speak, and this is for youth from uh, 8, 13 to 29. I'm working on a book called He Ain't Heavy, trying to collect the voices and stories of heterosexual men who are HIV positive. Um, Face Us, Not Our Status But Our Story, which is currently a coffee table book. It's going to be a coffee table book of the faces of people living HIV in the South. The really theme around that is to combat HIV-related stigma. And so it literally is, when I say faces, it's like just above the eyebrow, just below the chin, face. And so it's not only for us as community of people in the South to face ourselves, but it's for the community to face us as well and face the epidemic. Um, when my first child, Kazembe, um, I was already living with HIV when I married his mother. Well I, I, well, I was already living with HIV when me and his mother got pregnant. I married her sometime after that. <laughs> but, but he was born negative and she remained negative. But this was in the very early 90s. And at the time, uh, she was the only person who knew I was HIV positive. And so the way I was mentally and emotionally was just... I was presenting at work in this great space, like going to be a children's librarian, but the rest of my life was really very dark. And I didn't know how long I was going to live. So actually, when I found out we were pregnant, I started writing to him. And I wrote letters to him. Ended up writing letters to him for about nine years. And it was about who I was. I wanted him, It started out beginning because I wanted him to know who I was from my own voice. I wanted nobody him, nobody to tell him who his dad was. So I was sharing with him about who I was, about my childhood, about how I was raising him, about my sexuality, about my mental health, about my struggles, about me, me being sexually assaulted as a child. Just all I was just pouring all this out because I had, didn't have anyone else I had ever shared this with. So I wanted somebody to know and I ended up writing this to my son. And so I'm actually going to publish it as a memoir called Raising Kazembe. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if a memoir can be like 700 pages. <laughs> but but, but I've, I've continued to look at it and I said, oh, if I cut that out and cut that in. So, so right now, the, the, what the holdup is, is like, am I going to publish 700 pages of letters? I don't know. Actually, the, the people who I had typing it from the journals just got so overwhelmed with it, they couldn't even type it, and they were like, look, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So I ended up having to type it myself. So Raising Kazembe is a memoir I'm working on. Uh, and then um, two that recently came to me, and I've actually got submissions. One is called We Bear Witness. And We Bear Witness is essentially for anyone to contribute to who has bear witness to the HIV AIDS epidemic. You don't have to be living with HIV, but if you bear witness to a person to an institution, you bear witness to this epidemic, you can write something, contribute to that. And, uh, and another one is called Walk to the River's Edge. And Walk to the River's Edge is really seeking people to, um, to submit contributions around black bodies, uh, black folks and black folks who have contributed to the HIV AIDS epidemic in some way, shape, or form in the sense that 
Um, what I tell the, the, the folks that I'm working with in the Deep South now is that there have been people who have walked to the river's edge so that you can build a bridge to get to the other side. And so that's, that's kind of where that comes from. And so working on all of those um, all at the same time, because, of course, I, I don't get a submission every day. I wish I did because I'd be done. Um, but, uh, yeah, working on those. And I just, I just love the work. I love the doing. And I will say that after uh, Sisters Week came out in September and um, she got overwhelmed with women finding my name and inboxing me on Facebook and, and, and saying, oh, Kafri, I wish I would have known or, or, or I, I, I've heard about this and I would love to share my story. So this is the only book that I revisit. I'm actually right now collecting submissions for System Speak, Sister Speak Volume 2. And so submissions have been coming, for the, coming in for that really kind of rapidly because once women trust you with something, it's like it's, it, the floodgates open. And so, um, and so, yeah. I think, see, and see, that's why I don't know how many book projects you do, and I still don't know. You just listen to volume and count them because there's, there's always another one as well. I, I know, because the ideas keep coming. Mm-hmm. I and do. And I'm it's, blessed I mean, in that way. You are. Yeah, blessed in that way. And I love reading all of them that you put out, and Thank I can't you. wait for more and more and more. Thank you. Um, yeah, and so I do recommend that people um, check them all out because I think one thing that's really powerful about, in particular, narrative um, and storytelling with this, uh, like you do in all of your written works that I've seen, is that people can find themselves easily in that format. It can be a little bit more difficult for people to do that with numbers and papers and data. And so I think, though, that the combination is uniquely powerful when you're trying to create social change, which you've also really spoken to earlier throughout the day. And so I'm mindful that we've got about 25 minutes left in our time together, and I really wanted to have some time for audience Q&A, too. And so the first question that comes from the audience Q&A, actually, when I was talking to people on our team, like, what would they want to ask you? Um, to sort of start to kick off this conversation. We're at, a, we're at Northwestern University sitting in the Institute for Sexual and Gender Minority Health and Well-Being here in this uh, large research-intensive university. And the question, though, that we often don't get to hear from somebody who's doing work primarily on the community side, also as somebody who's a voice in community, as a leader. I mean, we didn't even get to all your awards that you've won for doing what you do. Um, but we don't often hear. So what, what advice would you have for people who are attempting to be researchers doing community-engaged work? Like, what would you tell the room before you today about do's and don'ts of how to actually do research that is with communities and reflects the lives of communities? Before I answer that question, I want to just want to share two things about stories. And this is what I hold with me when I'm telling stories and when I'm collecting stories. Maya Angelou said that there's no greater agony than an untold story. And I believe that every person has a story to tell. Everyone has a story to tell. But Barry Lopez said, when someone shares a story with you, care for them and learn how to give them away when they're needed. Because sometimes a person needs a story more than they need food to stay alive. And sometimes, particularly around HIV, people hearing someone else's story really helps, really helps. And so... Yeah. Um, what I would say for folks doing research and want to do community engagement, I, you know, several things. Show up in community. Show up in community. 
naturally. Show up in the community. I mean, you know, build relationships. Build trust on an individual level. You have to be real honest about your intentions. Just, yeah, but be really intentional. Because my thing is, is you can build a relationship by starting just by being intentional. Meet some folks and be in some place and say, hey, you know, can we have coffee? Can we talk about this? What do you think? And would you want to be a part of it? But a relationship can be built from there. So relationships can come either by knowing people already or by um, developing, developing through, your, through your presence in community or it can be by you intentionally seeking someone in community and saying, hey, I see the work you're doing and I think it would inform my work and can we talk and can we work together? We do have a um, microphone that can be carried around, and if anyone would like to ask questions, we'd like to open it up for about the next 20 minutes or so to just have a dialogue. Um. Hi, I'm Parks. Um, I'm originally from the South, and one thing that a lot of my fellow, like, queer, kind of, like, ex-Southerners, left-displaced Southerners often talk about is, like, how to bring resources back um, and one of my questions, I guess, is like, how are you strategically partnering with these larger institutes, right? Like Northwestern and Chicago, um, in a way that like is not bringing things into the South that is not true to like the communities and cultures, um, because they feel very separate, um, as someone who has existed in both spaces. Um, so how are you navigating that? Um, I think what's well, interesting because when me and Lauren started working, she was in the South. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My family's from the South. The, uh, My mom's side and, is all. Yeah, our mom's side is from the South. That's yeah. important too. Yeah. Because it, the thing about the South is, is that <laughs> people do want to know where you're from. And they want to know very, with very intention, like where you're from. I mean, I've been living in Georgia, I've been living in the South for a lot of my adult life. But quite honestly, they know I live and work in the South, but still, they're like, you from Pittsburgh, man. <laughs> <laughs> you from Pittsburgh. Because every football season, they see me with, with Pittsburgh Steelers. They're like, you from Pittsburgh. You are not rooting for the Falcons. So, dude, like, really? Uh, but, but, but I think I think that I'm very intentional about saying what my intentions are. So the, even the the... What two grants that we that we've written for will really be about um, bringing resource to to the South in a way um, that what, what what I hope what what will have other institutions be like wow I should have been doing that right particularly institutions that are bedded and deep in the South right that I should have been doing that um, and and it's interesting because in Atlanta particularly you have you have of course, you have the you know the Atlanta, Atlanta University Center with you know with Morehouse and Spelman and Clark Atlanta, and that's one kind of entity in terms of academic institutions. And then you have Georgia State, right, which is the state college. But then you have Emory, <laughs> and, and Emory, um, you know, it's funny because the folks in Emory are always trying to do something in community, and it just never seems to work. And it never seems to work because because they have this kind of reputation of them being Emory. 
and, and that they're separate and apart from everything else that's going on in the collective community, right? And I think that when we show up and bring and and don't isolate ourselves from institution-wise, isolate ourselves like that, and, and show up as people first, right? And you don't have to bring your your P's and your H's and your T's because you know uh, this morning I'm here with Healthy Voices, and this morning one of our we were talking as a group, and one of our one of the other participants said he was on his panel, right? And on his panel with all the, you know, and, and the folks were introducing themselves, you know, JD, PhD, ED, DD, you know, they were all, all these, all this stuff. And he got to him and he said, my name is Daniel HIV. But what I, I say all that to say is, is when we show up, um, being honest, being open, but being, but bring, bring, bring our human selves first. Um, and 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 I think the, the the thing about the South is, and and, the, and particularly um, what's going on in the South now is that there's been a lot of attention turned to the South, particularly around HIV. So you have you have uh, Viv doing an accelerated initiative specifically with Baltimore and with Jackson, Mississippi. They're doing a direct initiative to to make an impact in those cities. And just recently, um, Gilead Foundation has, Gilead, Gilead Pharmaceuticals, Gilead Sciences, uh, has committed $100 million over 10 years to fighting the HIV AIDS epidemic in the, in the Deep South. And what they've done through that is created three coordinating centers, which Emory is one, and Emory's going to be doing um, kind of the, the evaluation kind of piece of things. Um, the University of Houston, which is doing uh, trauma-informed care, and then the Southern AIDS Coalition, which is doing our work um, around um, around stigma and stigma reduction, um, because we believe that as we reduce stigma in the South, we will free people up to to get tested, to go to the doctor, to take the medication, to share their status, to create community that will save their lives. And the, the other thing I'd say for this as a, a researcher, something I've seen sometimes is an approach where researchers send their own teams from wherever they're at down to collect data and then literally fly away with it back to wherever they're from. And that's not the approach that, certainly not that we've taken. Um, we intentionally partnered, like, you, know, you know I've known each other for a while, and when you came to me with RWJF, I came to you with the, the other opportunity and said, okay, well, we actually want to pay people on the ground in the communities now who are there every day doing this work all the time to do this work and to put the money and send it there rather than thinking about taking the data and flying it back. Yeah, and that goes a long way for building one our only trust because quite honestly, I'll just say it this way, black folks are tired of folks coming in and studying the pathology, mm-hmm. exhausted with it. Because ultimately, that's all it is. It's an exercise for somebody to come and study our pathology and walk away without ever informing the community about anything and results or anything. And, I, and that's not just academic institutions. That's, that goes with, I mean, I can film projects and documentaries, a number of things. But, but uh, the community is, you know, communities talk, you know. And and how you how you show up in community goes a long way in, in what you can get done and what you can't get done, and I think that that um, 
that being intentional about being inclusive of, of, you know, even before you, even before, like, actually having community as a part of deciding what you're actually going to do, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And not saying, not coming with the idea of what you're going to do, but actually having it informed in some way by community. Not that it's going to shape entirely, but, but having at least some synergy and some understanding in that of, of, what, of what you want to bring to community and, which, and, what, and what's the intention and what the community is, how the community is going to benefit. That's one of the things you have to, there has to be some benefit for the community and that has to be spoken and that's to be verbal and it has to be tangible. Thank you. We have, yep, I see another question. Um, thank you for being here. Um, I've really enjoyed hearing you speak so far. Um, my question is, is bringing it a little bit back to community. Um, so my family is Dominican and grew up Latino. A lot of things you mentioned about your own community and your own um, uh, childhood and adolescence kind of resonate. Um, communities talking, everybody kind of wanted to know your business, but also things kind of related to stigma, but almost just being the other things that aren't talked about. So mental health, um, health in general, um, HIV, um, sexuality. Um, and so I guess how, I know you've mentioned that um, for your lead academy, you, you train people to be the intervention with regards to HIV, but I guess, do you have thoughts or feelings about how we can kind of bust open these communities, mostly I feel like communities of color where people don't want to seem like they're weak for talking about mental health issues or if you're struggling, right? Like I'll call my parents and say like, oh, grad school labs suck. And then they'll t- say like, don't really tell your aunts and uncles. And I'm like, why not? Like they're, they've known me all my life. Like I should be able to talk to them about like stresses in my life and share successes. But um, for them, it's almost like, okay, you're the first kid on both sides. So be like only share your successes so that we seem like the best parents and like perfect in every way. So, um, but that's not real life. And so, um, and I just, I feel like, I don't know. So I was just hoping to hear your thoughts on that and to see if there's a way that we can kind of get communities to talk more than just about gossip about other people and and just kind of to see the good and the bad about life. Yeah, I think that starts with us as individuals, right? And and because, you know, (laughs) I haven't gotten to that part yet, but I also show up, you know, I also show up, you know, I'm bipolar. I'm being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, and and I'm an insomniac. You throw all that in the mix, you get a whole bunch of crazy. If if I'm not taking care of myself mentally and emotionally, right? If I'm not if I'm not practicing self care, if I'm not showing up for talk therapy, if I'm not taking my medication, things can go sideways pretty quick. But also, what I would say to you is, you know. When I, in many ways, it was fine for my family when I was suffering in silence, when I was quiet, when I was suffering in silence. When I became vocal, and then it was like they had to start dealing with their own shame about me, right? But I also let them know that that, that, that is just stuff to carry. That is not my stuff to carry, right? But the longer I've stood in my truth, the more time I've had for my family to come stand beside me in my truth. So I have, you know, so I, I mean, like, I, I, I have, you know, my big, I always call my big cousin Dalton. My big cousin Dalton is my ride or die. You know, he will hurt somebody over cop free, you know. Um, but I think that we have to, we have to just take liberties. We have to go ahead and, and make ourselves uncomfortable and be able to, to, to show up in spaces. You know, I, I have... I guess because I'm so transparent 
in my professional work and they see like like all the posts that have been done like they, they see me doing this stuff right they're all my Facebook friends or whatever and, you know my cousins and aunts and uncles and sister and like you know children or whatever the community see me doing this stuff and and as a as a as a family they're now taking a great sense of pride out of that wow he is doing his thing you know and that's really what it's come to it's like damn and, and doing his and doing his thing translates for me is I'm standing in my truth right and 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 them saying he's doing his thing translates to me that they're standing beside me in my truth and so um, having that you know the thing about families is is that we have to understand and have conversations if we're ever going to understand the kind of health things that we have because quite honestly if you're not talking to family, you don't know if diabetes runs in your family or not, right? right? You don't know if cancer runs in your family. People don't even know their fa- Some people don't even know their own f- internal family's health history, right? Somebody passed away. Oh, she passed away from woman issues. What, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? You know, when I was a child, you said somebody's in the you know, ladies in the hospital. Like, oh, it's woman issues. I'm like, okay, oh, she's a woman, but what the hell? <laughs> she's in the hospital because of it. I mean, like, it doesn't it make sense, right? It just didn't make sense. The stuff that you know, you know, you, you, am I, am I making any sense? Yeah, okay, yeah. okay, all right. I just want to know that just my failure that I'm really messed up. Uh, but yeah, so we have to we have to do that. We have to be intentional, you know. And I would say I would say you know what? We also have to say to our parents that may have been your experience, but we're really trying to do something different. We're really trying to bring our family some healing and some wholeness. And part of being whole is being able to show the broken parts, right? Being able to because my thing is. When I'm the best at what I do is when, I'm, is when I'm showing the people that I'm working with that I am just as weak in some areas as they are, right? That I'm still, that all of this, the suit and these shoes, it is really an outfit, right? It's my superhero costume, yes. right, that I put on so that I can present. But at the same time, I'm talking here and I have self-doubt rolling in my head right now about everything I've said since I've gotten in this room, right? So letting people know that, 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 right, that this is that part of the reality is, right, and, and the human experience is, is that none of this is perfect. And we can't, we can't be perfect. Some days I'm better than others, but on none of those days am I perfect, right? You can take, I think, one more question got time thank you Kafre. I am a, a disciple anytime that I can come in here you talk I will show up whatever is necessary so this was a treat and um, it was wonderful thank you um, could you um, tell us a little bit more about your book um, Sisters Speak yes and uh um, and maybe comment on the role of women and female-identified people in, um, you know, getting to zero in the epidemic among um, gay and bi men, um, specifically black and gay bi men. Yeah. Well, Sister Speak, um, like I said, it's a collection of women's voices who are living with HIV. And, um, you know, it, it really was one of those things where, like I said, that I cannot tell my story unless I'm sharing other stories. And, and, and 
you know, my, my big cousin Dalton, his wife purchased a copy of the book, and then she started reading it, and she told her girlfriends, and they purchased copies. The, and the thing about this is that it is a book about women and, what, and, and things that are on women's minds. So whether it be dating, whether it be their weight, whether it be intimate partner violence, whether it be sexual assault, whether it be um, raising their children or who's going to care for my children if I pass away, whether it be um, pregnancy, because there's a woman who walks us through her pregnancy, HIV and pregnancy journey in here, right? Um, whether, whether it be um, um, trying to navigate a system and Spanish is your first language and you're here in America, it's in this. So you have these women who have really just decided that um, they wanted to share a piece of them. Uh, and, and in the call for submissions, really what I say to women and to anyone that I do a call for is that if you're reading this submission, then right now you need to intimately understand that there's somebody right now sitting in some space of dear isolation that, no, that they, don't know, they don't have anybody that they can share the, the HIV, or they feel like they don't have anybody they can, they can share the HIVA status with. That they, and, and because of that, they're not seeking care, they're not seeking wellness, they're not seeking wholeness. And so when I ask women, just share just a piece of your story. And so that's, that's what showed up in Sister Speak. It showed up with um, uh, the, uh, an Indian sister who um, dealt with uh, being HIV positive in India and the caste society and how, um, how uh, when, she, when her husband divorced her, what that looked like for her in terms of society in India. And then her finding then a, a second love and a second marriage and a second husband. She walks you through that in several different pieces. In the, in, in, you know, in, and it really is about, I tell you, it is about women um, it's a, but it's also about these women and how courageous and how heroic and how powerful they are that in the face of whatever it is they're dealing with, as all women do, they show up, right? They show up for themselves. They show up for their children. They show up for the community. And that's what, in terms of uh, this epidemic and getting to zero, women are going to be the ones that are going to get us there. Because, and I say that because and I'm not talking just talking about women who are HIV positive. I'm talking about women, period. Because like I said earlier, when I talked about the collective community, the black community needs to get us here. So it's going to be, it's going to take Big Mama to tell the deacon and the preachers at the church, I'm not giving you no more money if you keep standing up here preaching this stuff and running my children out of here. Yeah. It's going to take that kind, of, that kind of women and mother courage to be able to say that we are just done with this in our community, that we're not going to be throwing our children away anymore, and we're not going to let institutions in our own community abuse our children as well anyway, right? We have to be, and I think that that's going to be, that's going to go a long way in ending this epidemic um, because the power that women have um, to change the world is, is just that, the power to change the world. You know this place would be a lot better place if, if Women were in control of it, right? It would, right? It just be. A, I mean, it, it it would be a lot better place. Um, and interesting enough, like just last week, they had the uh, Positive Women's Network had their second the second summit, and the women have. I don't know how many women in ten, but those women walked away with coalition, with camaraderie, with power, with empowerment, with knowledge, with education, and they've gone 
all of they've gone back to their respective places all over the country to continue to do that work. And I think that because women show up differently than men, um, that women are going to be the difference between this uh, ending this epidemic and not. You're welcome. I think another thing I wanted to mention that I really loved about working with you is how you really also strive to include transgender people, non-binary people, people of a variety of different gender identities in all the work that you do and all the books that you have um, and that you never thought twice about it. And I know you have another book. I don't know if you mentioned it, the one that's about uh, bisexual men. Oh, I did mention that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you have submissions for that. Those yes, are some I do have to... submissions. It's called All By Ourselves. Yes. And uh, and actually, we, yeah. we, we've been we've been using that as the as the tagline for our workshops lately. Yes. Yeah. It's All yeah. By Ourselves. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's B. just bi, just bi. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and that is really just seeking, you know, trying to. You know, trying to bring that 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 ethos in just to, to story. I have something I want to read to you. I think this will be a good way to close out too, because I think we're almost just a couple minutes. But I knew you I knew you couldn't do it without a reading. I was waiting for it. <laughs> no, no. This is another one of the things that Barry Lopez he said. He said everything is held together with stories. That is all that is holding us together stories and compassion and so that that's like it you know for me but I, I will read something let me see 154 great I think you all put I think you all put it on the uh, on the announcement you are the brave let's see 154. I think this will be a great way so I just want to thank you again for coming today for sharing your story giving us a lot of wisdom telling us the do's and don'ts of what we should be doing here at Northwestern no, you guys are doing it really wonderful Thank you. And I think this is a great way to close out. And for people who are listening to the live stream today, also on Twitter, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, if you want to tweet about this later, we do have, I don't, you remember the hashtag? Spotlight. Spotlight what? Spotlight on you. On what? Co- yes. <laughs> and so I feel like I want to bring that up right as you start to read, you know, taking us full circle and now we're going into your creative work. But really spotlight on Coffrey so you can join in on the hashtag. There's been a number of tweets already. Going to get up those impressions. Just, you know, by Twitter is going to come through. I know it. Yeah. Um, and so, and so, so. yeah, I, I need to up the, the Twitter handle for the Southern AIDS Coalition, the yep. Southern AIDS Co. But then my three Twitter handles are Cornbread Fish, Cycle for Freedom, and Sister Speak. So, y'all, yep. I need I need that because I'm like in the hundreds with mine. I need some help. Yes. I, you know, I, if, I was a, if I was a millennial, my stuff would be in the <laughs> but uh, I'm going to read this piece, and it simply is, You Are the Brave. You are the brave who do not break. It's reported that one out of three black MSMs are positive. You are the brave who do not break. I revisited my sexual experiences from past years. You are the brave who do not break. Dismiss physical symptoms altogether. You are the brave who do not break. Recognizing your fear from the usual amount of anxiety. You are the brave who do not break. So this is what a panic attack feels like? You are the brave who do not break. Unfortunately, I don't have my results yet. You are the brave who do not break. I return to the clinic two weeks later. You are the brave who do not break. Sitting in this waiting room. You are the brave who do not break. Is this it? Am I HIV positive? You are the brave who do not break. Still here, 29 years later. 
you and I are the brave who do not break. And thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed hearing part of Caffrey's story. Our next episode will be released on July 15th, featuring a conversation with the founder of Scarletine, Heather Corinna.